There goes a fly ball towards left field. Going back fast is Kennedy. Kennedy gets there, and he takes it. And the Cleveland Indians are the world champions of 1948. And they are leaping joyously as they go off the field. Din is being mobbed as are Lou Boudreau and out in center field, Tucker and Kennedy come running in arm in arm. This is Cleveland's team, a baseball history podcast. A regular look back at professional baseball in Cleveland from 1901 and beyond. Now, here's your host, Guardians team historian, Jeremy Fedor. Hello and welcome back. It has been a long time since I've recorded a podcast. The podcast is not dead. We are uh, happy to be back. It's just, it's been a... uh, a long off season, and uh, aside from my duties as team historian, I also work in the communications department. So a lot of things came up, but I've been meaning and meaning and meaning to get back to this podcast. And guess what? Here we are. We are back. So I hope uh, everyone's excited for the podcast and uh, ready to tune in. Hopefully, I can get more episodes going as the the season progresses. But um, hey. Here we are, the first step. Let's uh let's go. And being back, our first topic of this new podcast year or is an interview I had actually last week with um, a former player for the club. Now, uh, the name isn't going to be a, a household name like Jim Tomey or uh, you know Sandy Alomar, but still someone that played in the major leagues for then the Cleveland Indians in 1975 and a bit in 1976 and a former first round draft pick. And that is uh, right-handed pitcher Eric Rach. And I got to know Eric a little bit before I recorded this interview. We had exchanged emails back and forth. Um, He had sent us an email asking if we had anything in the archive. And sure enough, we did. We had some photos and I went through the the Plain Dealer archives and and pulled some material for him, which as I was going through that, it kind of got my, you know, head going. And I thought, hey, this would be a great topic for a podcast. I have, you know, Eric's contact information and Everyone that plays in the major leagues has a story. And, you know, I don't care if it's one game or a 20 year career. Playing in the major leagues is such a big deal. And, you know, only so many guys get there. So having, a, you know, a connection with Eric, it just made sense. And I was kicking the can a little bit down the line, eventually said, hey, let's, uh, Let's chat, and with the beauty of Zoom, you're able to record interviews whenever and wherever. So we finally made it work, and it was it was a lot of fun. We sat down for about an hour and kind of talked about uh, the the span of his career. As I mentioned, he was a a first round pick of the Glen Cleveland Indians in the 1972 January draft. Earlier in the 1969 draft, he had been picked in the 12th round by the Royals. 
but um, Eric played parts of, of two seasons, a little bit. 1975 was the bulk of his career and a little bit in 1976. And you know, we'll get to that part as we talk. So without further ado, I'm going to uh, get this into the interview portion. All right. So, you know, we're going to start back at the beginning. And I saw, according to your baseball reference page, you're actually drafted by the Royals in 1969. Was there any reason you didn't, you know, want to go with that? Or was it just you felt you were young and wanted to go to college or? Well, when I when I when I graduated from high school, I was 17. I was a year early, so I was still reasonably young and immature at 17. But um, the, the Royals had drafted me. Uh, Rosie Gilhausen was the guy that came out and wanted to sign me. And, uh, you know, the offer was like uh, $23,000. You know, coming out of high school, that's a lot of money. Even back in the 60s, that was a lot of money. But the the uh, unfortunate part for them was that USC had offered me a, a scholarship to play football. My at-the-time girlfriend was going to USC. Her dad had graduated from USC as, as an attorney. And, I mean, it was... You know, it was always great to be able to think of playing football for the Trojans. And then, oh, by the way, you know, they've got one of the, the greatest uh, baseball programs, you know, in the country for all times. Um, so, you know, I had the opportunity to to be a freshman and make the varsity as a pitcher. So, I mean, who, who wouldn't want to go to USC and play varsity football and varsity baseball? So, I, you know, I, I, I politely declined uh, their invitation to join the Royals. And were you were approached by other schools as well as USC? And was it always football first for you? I, I was I was uh, fortunate enough to have uh, some breaks and some God given ability. And I had you know I had several. I'm going to say 30, 35, somewhere in that range of uh, scholarships to play at different places. You know, football related. Everybody in the pack at that time it was the pack eight offered a scholarship except for Stanford. They told me they didn't like my grades, <laughs> which seems kind of weird, but nonetheless, um, you know, I had some of the schools from uh, the Ivy League, Yale, Harvard, Brown, they, they gave me scholarships. I had the opportunity to go to the uh, Naval Academy. So, I mean, it was, it was an honor to have these kinds of things. Notre Dame, you know, Texas, you know, some, some pretty big football powers, but it's a separate sort of, a separate sort of like, you know, the football side of you likes to beat up people, you know, and sack quarterbacks and the baseball side of me, you know, likes to pitch and all that goes with baseball. So I wanted to be able to play both. And in some of the schools, they just didn't offer, they didn't offer scholarships. It was just financial aid. They didn't want me to play baseball. If the baseball guy came out, he didn't want me to play football. So there was a myriad of reasons why. I chose SC, but you know the two things that it boiled down to was my girlfriend and football. I saw you. You're you're born in Detroit, but you when did you move to uh, California? So, um, as I recall, and what I what I know, most of my parents have passed. So, um, my I believe that before I was two years old, my mom and father were divorced, and my mom hopped on a bus and went to California. I'm not a hundred percent sure why. It seems to me in the background, I remember her following some, you know, some guy there she'd met in a uh, country western band. He was going out there, or their band was going out, and she didn't want to be with my dad, and she thought California was the place to go. So we hopped on a bus and went out there. Uh, settled in 
Uh, we had an apartment uh, where I went to kindergarten in L.A. district, L.A., uh, the county district. And then we moved out to Compton um, when I was in the, I mean, what, the uh, first grade. Kindergarten in the, you know, the L.A. city and then the district afterwards. And I, I grew up in, you know, Compton's home. You know, there was success at USC. Did you get on? I, I'm looking at your 1975 media guide and it doesn't mention too much about yeah. football. So my guess is you quickly shifted your focus to baseball there. I did. I did. I played, you know, I played the, the two years there. After after that, I went in and talked to Coach McKay and told him that I wanted to, you know, I wasn't going to play baseball or football anymore. I wanted to, to do baseball. Baseball seemed like, seemed like the logical less wear and tear, um, longer life, you know, more money to be made, et cetera. And, and of course I you know, loved him in a different fashion. So he was not obviously happy that uh, he had to give up the scholarship for me, but he was gracious and let me go. And you now he became a baseball player. You know, again, it sounded like uh, it's, uh, your media guide bio mentions you guys won two World Series titles out at uh, USC, and you had a six and two and seven and three yeah. records. I mean, it sounded like uh, you know you had you had a lot of uh, hopefully good memories out at, at USC. I, I do. I um, so you know, lots of decisions were made as a an irresponsible kid uh, to you know to leave baseball or football um, and go into baseball, and then after my second year which would have been my, um, you know, the beginning of my junior year, I thought, you know, why do I want to stay in college? Um, you know, I can play professionally and that's what I want. So I decided to sit out. Um, and at that time, Bowie Kuhn was the, was the director of the major league ball. And I had to write a letter to him telling him I wanted to come in to, uh, to be, you know, draft eligible. I had to wait, I had to be out of college for like 60 days. And then um, they would put me in the draft. Uh, during those 60 days, you know, I had teams, uh, Dodgers, uh, Minnesota, Baltimore, uh, Detroit, you know, a couple of teams wanted to, you know, work me out. Let me throw. Uh, the Indians were never one of them. The Indians never said a word. Not boo, not, I had no clue. And then, of course, they ended up drafting me in, you know, in 72, which was a total shock. I had it in my mind that the Dodgers were going to draft me and I'd go to, uh, Albuquerque to play for a year and then go to Chavez Ravine and you know pitch for 20 years. <laughs> that's that's what I had in my mind anyway. Not even close though. So um, you had mentioned about the uh, about the national championships. As it turns out, we were national championships. We were national champions beginning 69-70 for five years in a row and then six out of seven years. So if I'd have finished all four years, I could have been a national championship in baseball for four years. And then in 73, which would have been my senior year, we were national champions in football. There's probably not too many people out there that, you know, could have a ring for college national championships for both football and baseball. So, but, you know, it's something that, that I thought about, but I made the right choice for me. So you mentioned you worked out for clubs and, you know, Cleveland. Yeah wasn't one like what what where were you when you heard you were a drafter do you remember who called you or who told you and and your initial reaction to being drafted by you know let's call it what it is like we weren't a very good team at that time yeah the the that year or the, or the year previous if i recall you know, from memory cleveland was like 
like 60 something in 101 or 105. And um, they had the first choice in the draft. So they chose me first in the nation, you know, which was a compliment. But I mean, I had no idea. I mean, to be honest with you, I wasn't even sure that I realized that there was an American late. I mean, you know, growing up in, in Compton and Los Angeles, it was the Dodgers, Dodgers, Dodgers. And I never gave much thought to the Angels or you know, any other American League team, let alone the Indians. So, you know, it was, it was, a, little, uh, it was a, a little disappointment to not be home. But, I mean, obviously the, the accolades from being the first draft choice, you know, being drafted, all that sort of stuff. I had learned from, as it turns out, Russ Schneider, who was, ended up being my father-in-law later in life, he had called and wanted to do an over-the-phone interview you know, based upon the fact that the Indians drafted me first and that sort of thing. So I learned from him. And then eventually I had, uh, I'm going to think of from the Indians, I don't, I don't think it was Phil Seggy. There was an ex-pitcher from the Indians that had been in the system who was a scout and for the life of me. Jeremy, I can't think of who it was. Your media guide says Mel Nelson. That's it, Mel Nelson. Yep, that's the guy. Yep, he came out and uh, we talked and you know took a took some time and they finally signed me and off I went. In, in those days, did they bring you out to Cleveland or did you not get a chance to to go out and you know see Municipal Stadium until you were actually up with? They the they did they did not they did not. Um, all they did was, you know, we haggled about the contract. And um, after I finally signed, you know, I was invited to big league spring training in Tucson. And um, I was able to play with the big league team, you know, until they ended up putting me down in the, in the minor leagues. I ended up going to double A ball in Elmira, New York was my first year. But to be honest with you, I, I thought I had every opportunity to break with the big league club because I had a good spring training, had a really good spring training. But, you know, not knowing much about professional baseball, certainly there were, you know, there were guys under a contract that they couldn't get rid of or couldn't, you know, they weren't going to eat their contracts or trade. And, you know, you had the, I can't think of the word I want. You were able to be put back, the options of being put back in the minor leagues three times. So in essence, they could have owned me for, you know, four years and kept dropping me back into minor league ball. But, um, you know, that's changed on the options stuff but nonetheless i was heartbroken that i didn't get to break with the club but i did go to elmira that year in that first spring training do you remember was there anyone that kind of took you under their wing or was it kind of just hey rookie stay out of our way kind of thing so gaylord was around you know he was uh he was like the grandfatherly type the mentor type there was um pitcher ray let's see ray i think it ray's last name he was a pitcher for the Indians, but he ended up going to Baltimore, became a manager for a year. He was a right-handed pitcher. Um, and I, you know, I, pardon me for not remembering, but uh, I was I was a roommate of his. And then um, Alan Ashby, the three of us, you know, had a room together um, at the first first spring training. But, you know, as a, as a rookie, no one um, harassed me, nor were they much of you know, tend to show me the life, what to do, what needs to be done, all that stuff. So it was kind of a learn as you go sort of thing. Ken Aspermani was the manager at that time. And uh, Warren Spahn was the pitching coach for the first year. You know, all, all old school type of uh, managers. 
I think no. it was Ray Lamb. Was that the, the pitcher? No, no, no. Ray Ray Miller. Oh, okay. Yeah, Ray. Yeah, as it turns out, Ray Ray Lamb and I had some some conversation because Ray was a pitcher at SC as well before the Indians drafted him. So it was, it was Ray Miller. He was a minor league pitcher, pitched in the, in the big leagues a little bit, then was traded to Baltimore. And after he left there, he became the manager. But, but Ray was Ray Miller was probably the closest thing to someone who took me under his wing, you know, to show me the ropes. So, and as a pitcher, you, know, you mentioned Warren Spahn. Do you recall working yeah. with him at all? I mean, gosh, that's such a big name in baseball history. I recall. Uh, I don't recall much teaching, in all honesty. You know, there was a lot of angst of getting in shape. You know, it's not like it is now, you know, where it's a year-round thing and you make the money to be able to, you know, be in shape all year round, that sort of stuff. You went there and, and you got in shape while you were there. Um, there wasn't a lot from my part of, you know, you should try this, do that, throw this way, curveball this way, change up that way. Um, I don't remember a lot of instruction like that. Um, so, you know, I, maybe that's old school. That's the way they did in the you know, old school days. You just were supposed to know your stuff unless there was something glaring. Everybody just kind of left you alone, got you in shape, and off you went. That's what I recall, anyway. So. Yeah, you, you you mentioned then your next trajectory were, were the minor leagues for a while. You mentioned Elmira, Ivy Down, Elmira, San Antonio, Oklahoma City, and San Antonio. It mentioned, too, 1972 yeah. Eastern League All-Star Game. Do you remember, were there many perform, future yeah. professionals on that uh, those rosters? You know, I, I, I'll be very honest to tell you that I don't recall don't recall a lot of of the guys that were in double A that year on the all star team. Um, you know, I, I know that for instance, I know like when we played the New York team, uh Charlie Spikes was on that team. Um, I remember um John Walkenfuss was a catcher for Detroit. He was on the Detroit double A team. We were we were a very sad sack sort of team. We didn't have a lot of good players. Didn't do very well at all. As a matter of fact, I was uh, I was uh, wasn't my record like five and eleven or something like that. If you can see that, five and I was 12. zero and five and made the All Star team. Yeah, five and twelve. Okay, I was zero and five and made the All Star team. That's how bad we were. So I was pitching reasonably well. We just weren't playing well. So you had a two seven nine ERA to finish that that season. Yeah, yeah, I had a good year, uh, and you know, was I put in a lot of innings, and before the end of the year, my elbow started to uh, ache. So they, you know, they just shut it down. As it turns out, I ended up going to Cleveland, seeing the, the Indians doctors, and got my first and only uh, injection, cortisone injection for my for my elbow. And that was that. I went to a couple of Indians games. I spent the winter in in Cleveland and watched them play. And then uh, that winter, I ended up getting married. <laughs> I, I met Russ's daughter, Eileen, in, uh, in spring training that year. And after a week of knowing her, I proposed. She accepted, and we got married January that following year, 73. Whirlwind. That's that's. You know, it, it, it's wild because Russ Schneider is was such a big presence in the Cleveland media um, in terms of baseball writer. Oh, yeah. was, did anyone ever like kid you around about, you know, getting favorable like stories written about you then? Well, yeah, as you can imagine, 
you know, some, some guys, I mean, it's like anything else. You have, you have 25 guys on the team and they're all different. You know, most of the guys, no issue. Uh, you know, they would prank you or, you know, want to, you want to tease you about, Oh, you know, you're going to get good press here or bad press there. Or, you know, what's it feel like when, you know, your, your uh, father-in-law is a, uh, you know, can write for the press. You got to be good to his, his daughter, you know, stuff like that. But it was very, it was menacing at times because Russ, I mean, you know, that Russ was a, was a hell of a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was, there was talk about putting him in the baseball writers hall of fame because he was so good and well thought of. I mean, he had, he had like, at the time he had George Steinbrenner's, you know, private phone to, to his office. I mean, so he could call him up anytime. That's how well he was thought of. And, and with the Indians, he tried, he tried very hard to be you know, factual and true, but he didn't want it. He didn't want it to seem like he was going overboard because I was the son-in-law. So it was probably tougher for him than it was for me. Although, although I must admit, um, you know, the games that, that I pitched well, the stories were I pitched okay, and then the stories where I lost might not have pitched very well. I pitched terribly. I mean, so it was you know there was no improprieties from his side. So, I, and again, I I look back on that and don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it was probably tougher for him than it was for me. And he was good friends with Phil Seggy, you know, who you'd have to do the uh, negotiations with every year. Right. So it's very difficult to you know, look Phil in the eye and, and know that, you know, what I might be getting as a contract was, was not good or wrong or, you know, it's just a, it was a difficult situation. It was just difficult. <laughs> yeah. I imagine there was an extra layer than, than most players would have. Oh, yeah. um, so yeah. you, you get your, uh, your call up. Do you remember who told you? Was it a, you know, nowadays it's always on social media when these guys get their call ups, it's a big deal. Like, was it just, hey man, get up to get up to uh, Cleveland here with the club? Or so when I was I was my first year in Oklahoma City in '75. It would have been May. I was one and three, and I had a I had a like a two point three, two point four, two point five ERA. I pitched very well. The opening the opening uh, game was in Indianapolis for the season in '75, and I I beat uh, the Indianapolis team, which was Cincinnati. Two to one, went nine innings. It seems to me I had like ten or twelve strikeouts. Pitched very well. Second game I pitched in Tulsa. I don't remember. I don't remember who the, the major league affiliation was, but I lost like one to nothing. And then the uh, the next game, um, I pitched very well and lost again. Uh, I was one and two or one and three, and I was I was pitching well. And May of that year, the Indians traded Dick Bosman and Gaylord's brother, Jim Perry, to Oakland for Blue Moon Odom, which left a spot on the roster. You know, they were kind of floundering. And uh, they, you know, they, I got a call that morning. Um, I was in McDonald's, of all things, with my wife. And uh, Tommy Smith, who was uh, the center fielder for the, for the team, we were all sitting there having breakfast or maybe early lunch. And um, Red Davis was the AAA manager. He hunted me down and came into came into the McDonald's and told me that I had to get packed and I was going to Cleveland and I had to be there. If I recall, this was like a Thursday. I had to be there Friday night because I was going to pitch on Saturday against the Oakland A's. 
And of course, the A's were, uh, you know, the World Series champs the year before. That's how I found out. Are you looking at the plain dealer? You, you had a quote that said, if you're getting your feet washed, you might as well get it up to the neck. So I guess you were fully aware that, uh, you know, in front of you were, was a team composed of a couple Hall of Famers. Um, you know, do you remember your first batter you faced being on that mound? And, you know, you had Reggie Jackson in that lineup and just what was going through your head when yeah. you got to the mound? Well, so, you know, imagine imagine the, the nerves and being jittery to begin with at the old stadium. And at the stadium, you, we used to be on the first base side, the home team, and your bullpen was down on on the left field side, on the visiting team side. So each bull, so each dugout could look down and see what was happening in their own bullpen. So as I, we, and that was the year where they had the all red uniforms, you know, good or bad. I liked them, but a lot of people didn't. So, um, you know, I walked out of the dugout with my jacket and my glove to go down, walk across the field to walk down the left-hand side. And there were, in my, in my recollection, there were 25, 30,000 people there. And I got, uh, I got an ovation just for walking out on the field. I mean, so, you know, nervous jitters, first time, you know, everybody's expectations, that sort of thing. And, oh, by the way, you're playing the World Series champs, you know, the Oakland A's. Um, and I'm trying to think of um, their center fielder was a left-handed hitter. My first hitter, he um, got a base hit, ended up stealing second base, and the next the next three hitters I got out, Jackson included, um, and there was no run scored, so I you know I kind of settled into that, and we went on from there. And recollection, if recollection serves, I pitched like uh, it seems like I went between five and six innings, five and two thirds, five and a third, and um, Robinson came out and said he wanted to take me out of the game because the score was like five to three, five to two, five to three. We were ahead, and he said, I don't want you to lose your first game. Not that you're going to, but I don't want to give you the opportunity. So he took me out. You know, people gave me a standing ovation, and that was the first day in my first pitching experience. We ended up um, the parade of pitchers after that. Uh, they were able to uh, give up runs. So I ended up, I ended up getting a no decision although we won the game. So it was, you know, not bad. And of course my second start was in Anaheim against Ryan. And that was my first big league win, but so lots of, you know, lots of first, lots of excitement. Yeah. You know, I mean that you mentioned bigger crowd it was 25,000 there that day. So for municipal stadium, yeah. uh, that was a, That's a big lot. deal. And that first inning was Bill North that got the hit and Reggie Jackson. That's actually, Bill North. Yep. And, and Reggie That's flew into yeah. a, Reggie flew into a double play to end that first inning. So there you go. Yeah, you mentioned <laughs> your your first win against Nolan Ryan. I mean, gosh, I don't know how many players can say their first uh, major league win came against literally one of the greatest pitchers of all time. So uh, you know, is that? I mean, do you remember that day? I mean, like, hey, who am I up against today? You oh yeah, Nolan Ryan. You're like, oh gosh, you know, what am I going to do? Just go out there and see what happens. Well, you know, there's there's a mentality with pitching in that it's like any other business. You know, you kind of get you, you get prepared for it. You go out and you warm up. It's your turn on the mound. You know, you kind of get rid of the jitters after the first couple of pitches, and and you just you know, you just play. You know, you let your talent take over. And you know, in, in baseball, you just can't think too much about stuff like that. 
you know, you just let it work out. And there, there were, um, trying to think of, you know, the folks that were there. Mickey Rivers was the center fielder. Bruce Bakhti was the first baseman. Who else? Jerry Remy was the second baseman. Boy, that's all I can, I, all I can remember. So I'd have to think about that. But, Jerry Remy you know, leading off, Mickey Rivers in center, Tommy Harper at DH, Rivers, Joe LaHood in field. Bruce Bocci at first, Dave Chalk at third, Tom Egan at catching, Billy Smith at shortstop, and Morris Nettles in left field. Cool. I'm glad you've got all that. So a lot of a lot of those guys I played against in the minor leagues when they were in El Paso. Um, you know, I, I saw them on the way up. Um, as I remember, um, Harper went four for four. And, you know, I, I, I went uh, – but it was like you know, seven and two thirds or eight and two thirds was the was the line. Gave up two runs and ended up winning eight to two. It was like eighteen or nineteen ground ball outs. And um, after the game, Don Drysdale did the play by or did the color for the Angels. He came down in the uh, into the uh, locker room and came over and shook my hand and talked for a few minutes and told me how well he thought I pitched, which was a you know that was a a great honor to have that happen. So, and you know, me being the kid growing up in in Compton, watching Drysdale and Koufax, you know, my two favorite Dodgers, and now he's, you know, now you're shaking the guy's hand. That's pretty cool. I had 58 passes for that game, family and friends. You know, people that I hadn't seen for a long time wanted to come and watch me, you know, watch me pitch. And my best friend at the time, Jim George, um, he and I pitched together in. At SC, he came with his wife, you know, my mom, you know, you know, friends, close family members, that sort of stuff. It's very cool. Very, it's something I won't forget. I was. If I'm not, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, it was May the 14th. It was. Let me check. That was May 28th. 28th. Okay. It's the first one. Fourth. First thing it was the 14th. Yeah, that was your call update. Uh, your first start was May 24th. This was May 28th. So I was I was reading the newspaper so, account for after that day, and it mentioned like your one like a regret was you forgot to get the last out ball, and it's someone that's you know in charge of preserving yeah. the team's history. I, I feel that situation where you know you look back like oh I wish I would have would have got that. So did you happen to say did you get a lineup card from your first start or anything, or was that not a tradition? Uh, yeah. Back then? Yeah. No, Russ Russ gave it to me. Awesome. Um, so I've actually I've got, I've got a I've got a picture hanging on my wall of uh, the two lineup cards. Myself pitching. There's a picture of me and my my ex-wife Eileen, and then there's a, a picture that I truly uh, like. Russ had enough had enough thought to have the photographer go out. There used to be a sign out on on Anaheim Boulevard by the stadium that would give you you know what was going on that day. So it was, you know, if it was May the 28th, it would say May the 28th, um, you know, Ryan versus Rach, Indians, you know, Indians, Angels, something like that. So I've got, I've got that as a keepsake. That's pretty cool. Pretty cool to have. I, I remember having a ball. I don't know if it was the actual ball or, you know, if I took what was there or somebody gave it to me. But I do have a ball from my first win. You mentioned something in that article about well, maybe I'll just grab a ball and rub some dirt on it. I don't know. And uh, so <laughs> who, who knows what yeah, the. Uh, maybe that's what I did. <laughs> and we're going to take a short break here and we will be right back. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We are back and we will continue on with the interview with Eric. We left off. So oddly enough, those first two games, you didn't record a strikeout. Do you remember who your first strikeout was? I, I can't say that I do, to be honest with you. It was uh, um, June 8th, 1975, and it's someone that Clevelanders hold very near and dear to their heart, and that was Mike Hargrove when you guys played Texas. <laughs> With Texas. <laughs> the human rain delay, yeah. Um, I, I don't, you know, a lot of those things I don't, I don't remember nor think about as far as the first, obviously the first wins and that sort of stuff. I, I only remember... Uh, I remember bits and pieces of that game with Texas. Um, it seems to me I was supposed to pitch against uh, one of the Chicago team or against one of the teams. I was supposed to pitch in Chicago, but I got sick or I got the flu or something and ended up missing a start. And then, uh, you know, pitched against uh, Texas in Texas. And, you know, he was always, Mike was always an irritant, good ball player, nice guy, all that sort of stuff, playing against him, but just a pain in the butt. Yeah, as you know, every moment, step out, you know, pull your glove, pull your pants, you know, blah, 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 all that crap. So not being uh, in a good mood that day, I, I don't remember if I won or lost or how well I did. I, I don't remember pitching very well. But Alan Ashby was the catcher, and we zoomed one over his head because he was just, you know, being too long. And I remember him backing out, looking down at Alan Ashby and saying something to him and and Alan, you know, sat on his knees, said something to Mike, called timeout, walked out to the mound. And he said that that he didn't like that and that if I did it again, he was going to hit him over the head with a bat. So, you know, you've got to do it again. <laughs> you've got to do it again. Uh, you know, you can't let the guy call your bluff. So we did it again. And, of course, you know, he didn't come out, nor did he hit Ashby. And, you know, the, the game just continued. But. It's been so long, um, Jeremy. I don't remember, you know, the outcome. It seems to me that we won, but I, I just don't remember, to be honest. So, and, and I guess, um, you know, I was, I was looking up some more of your strikeouts, and um, you know, even though it was just that that seventy five and, and that game in seventy six, you still had a chance. You struck out Harmon Kilbrew, Reggie Jackson, and Carlton Fisk. So, I mean, that's three Hall of Famers. Then, you know, is that something that you, you know, not that you didn't think about that, but it's so, got to be kind of a, a neat feeling looking back that, you know, you, you went up against some of the greats in baseball and uh, were able to come out on top. So, you know, there's, there's just a couple of things that come into play here. I don't, like I said, you know, I don't, I mean, I, in the stream of things, I was a nobody, a pass through, you know, some guy that had talent uh, came up to the big leagues, got hurt and went home. But if there's any, any claim to fame that I can hold on to at all, is that that year in 75, if you recall, the um, Cincinnati and Boston were in the playoffs of the World Series, went seven games, Carlton Fisk home run, you know, in the 14th or 15th inning, whatever it was, that series, people called the best of all times. Well, that year I was 3-0 and against Boston. 
I beat them twice in Boston and, and once in Cleveland. So, you know, to know them and, you know, their, uh, Freddie Lynn was their center fielder and he and I played ball together at SC. You know, Rick Burleson was their shortstop and I played ball in high school and kind of Mac ball on the same team. You know, so there's some other things that I recall because of that. So, you know, and to remember, remember guys like, you know, Yastrzemski and, and, uh, and Jackson and that kind of stuff was, you know, it's, it's something that I, I obviously hold dear to my heart, you know, but, and as you get older, you forget that sort of stuff. But, you know, the, the fact that, the fact that I got to play, the fact that I beat Boston, you know, all those, all those things, yes, it means a lot to me. And it's a treasure that I'll, no one can take away. You had a, uh, looking back at a very tough loss against the, the Royals. I think it was Royals. You know, you, yep. you're up against your former USC teammate. It was a 2-1, 10-inning yep. duel. I think we gave up a home run to Kilbrew. It was 568th uh, during that game, which also, I guess, is flip side of striking them out, too. But do you recall that game? It was, an ex- you know, pitchers don't go do. 10 innings anymore. Yeah, well, yeah, nowadays you get to go five and, you know, they don't want people to hurt their arms because they're paying them so much. But, you know, in the in those days, the older days, I mean, the anticipation was, and what I, you know, you'd ask any pitcher of that era, that, you know, when they gave you the ball, your expectation was to go nine innings and finish the game, period. You know, and you always bitched at the coach if he wanted to take you out early, if there was, you know, anything that you were still throwing well, that sort of stuff. You always argued with the with the coach. But that made it special, um, that that game, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that Buzz was Buzz and I pitched you know, together at USC. Um, um, the fact that the game was such a low-scoring game, I'd given up the home run to Carl uh, Killebrew earlier in the game. It seems to me like third or fourth inning. It was, it was soon in the game, as I recall. You know, we tied the game. And then in the 10th inning, uh, the scenario was that there was a, a runner on third base. There was either one or two outs, and the hitter the, the hitter was a right-handed hitter. So Robinson came out. John Ellis was the catcher. He came out, and we talked about how we were going to pitch uh, the hitter. And um, so we decided we were going to keep the ball inside. You know, don't want him to extend his arms. Hit a fly ball. You know, try and try and keep the ball in the infield. You know, so they don't score the run. That's it. So that the very the very first or second pitch was inside, and the ball moved, and it got past Johnny Ellis, and the run scored. We lose two to one. The official scorer called it a wild pitch, and I, you know, I disagreed with that, but I didn't say anything, and found out later that Johnny Ellis went went and after the after the game went to the official score and said it wasn't a wild pitch, it was a pass ball. So they changed it. But I lost two to one and you know, after the game um after the game being such a a heartfelt loss, I sat in the dugout and they turned off the you know the lights in the field and I was still sitting out there. And Robinson had the the wherewithal to notice, you know, that his rookie pitcher wasn't in the dugout or wasn't in the clubhouse. So he came out and found me in the in the uh Dug out. We talked for a few minutes, you know, and he gave me the pep talk about, you know, you pitch well, it's going to happen, you know, those sorts of things. And, you know, come in and have a beer, forget about it. And, you know, we'll get on to the next one. So that's what we did. But I always had the, I always had a lot of uh, respect, you know, for the guy, first of all, but, you know, to realize that, 
I wasn't there. I had the presence to realize I wasn't there and come out and find me meant meant an awful lot. I guess it, it's probably a loaded question, but you know, with with anyone coming up in the majors, you know, you you hope and pray for a 10, you know, 15 year career. Um, and for you, sure. you know, you had the 75 and then I think it was just a game in 76, just injuries or just yep. what what was the uh you know the the result? Shoulder. I tore the rotator cuff in my shoulder. And I, you know, it was it was the game. I mean, I know it, it was uh, we left Detroit. I had pitched in Detroit, won won the game in Detroit. Uh, we went to Baltimore and had a day off. And so you, normally you would pitch, you take the day off, you throw on the side, take the day off, and then you pitch again. So my day throwing on the side, um, I came out of the Detroit game in the later innings because it was cold, wind was blowing around. And I kind of got a little stiff. And I, I think I'd thrown a lot of pitches from what I recall. Robinson came out and did the, you know, you've thrown a lot of pitches, you're ahead. And I'm going to yank you. We don't want you to get hurt, blah, blah, blah. So I came out. And again, we ended up, <laughs> I ended up winning the game. Although they, you know, they got close to tying it. So it was a little nail biter. But I ended up winning the game. And we fly to Baltimore. And I'm throwing on the side. And the press was standing around wanting to know how my arm was. How's your arm? How's your shoulder? Your blah blah. And so as I'm throwing, I mean the the in my mind I needed to prove that I was doing okay. So I humped up a little bit on a few pitches, you know, to let them know that I was throwing okay. Glove was popping pretty good, and I let go of a fastball, and I got pain in my shoulder like I'd never had before. You know, didn't say anything, just threw for a little bit, in some pain, and. You know, I was done, but everybody was satisfied that there was nothing wrong. And from that time on, it was never the same. I mean, I, I know, I know it was the pitch, and it was in Baltimore. You know, I know all those things, and then nothing. Life was not the same anymore. Um, they did the Indian. You know, in those days, there wasn't a lot of. You know, unless you were a guy that had been around forever, or you were making a hundred thousand dollars. You know, they you just sort of tried to work it out, and if if you couldn't, you couldn't fix it. Well, oh well. We'll give you your walking papers and you're done. And that's kind of what happened with me. You know, I went to spring training the next year and it was okay. Didn't throw so well. And they just released me. But I had to find out after the fact, after I left the innings, Indians, that I had torn my rotator cuff. I had to, you know, I physically had to go to the team doctor. I still went to the team doctor and had him do an orthogram on my shoulder. And, you know, it was torn. And in those days, it was, well, you know, we think we can fix it. It's going to take you a whole year to get back to the point where, you know, you can wipe yourself and you can comb your hair without pain. And then it's up to you to decide what to do for baseball if you can get in shape and get. But not many people, not many people came back from, from rotator cuff surgery at that, you know, at that stage. Wayne Garland had that happen. You know, he blew his rotator cuff and that was that. And as it turns out, the last time that Steve Bus Steve Busby ever pitched, he pitched in Cleveland. Um, he threw his arm out, and I think he pitched five innings, as I recall. And they clocked him at like 78, 79 miles an hour, something like that. And he did the same thing. You know, blew out his shoulder, and that was bad. So no one ever fixed it, or or didn't didn't do very well at it. And we're going to take one more quick break. And we're back with our final part of the interview. I do want to know, so you briefly brought it up, but 
he played for Frank Robinson, one of the greatest all-time men in baseball. You know, what was that like being under his coach or manager? Privilege. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, these are my opinions. Uh, obviously, they're, you know, no one else's but mine. I mean, I respected Frank, obviously, for you know, what he was as a, as a person, as a manager, as a player. I mean, there was nobody tougher than Frank. Um, he was a player's manager, but he, he expected a lot out of you. You know, Frank was great, and he expected you to be great. And, and that, was the, that was his downfall, in my opinion, in, in the manager that he was. You know, he could hit the fly ball. He could hit the ball to the right side. You know, he could bunt. He could do all those things. And he, he couldn't understand why other hitters or players couldn't do what he did. And I think that was the frustration. And I think that was, you know, only my opinion. From what I saw, that was, that was why he didn't become a much better manager or manage for many more years after that. You know, he just, I just don't think he could get past that, that people couldn't do what he did. So that's what I saw. But he was a great guy to play for. I mean, just an outstanding guy to play for. You know, he was always, he was always two innings and five pitches ahead of everybody else, that sort of thing. Good, good eye for the game. You know, if you did something wrong, you would chew your butt about it, but it was forgotten, and that was that. And you couldn't ask for anything more than that. And then in, in later years, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, um, when, when the Indians gave him his statue in center field, um, he had a, you know, when there was, the press came out, and he got up and talked. Mind you, this is you know probably what uh, thirty forty years past mm-hmm. and when I played for him. Part of part of his speech was talking about the seventy five team, you know myself, Eckersley, Manning, you know a couple other guys, and he he mentioned me by name by saying you know I wanted to take Rach that year in spring training, but Seggy wouldn't let me or didn't you know whatever the whatever the reasoning was, and I almost fell out of my chair. I mean, you know, that's years and years ago to, to remember, you know, a nobody like myself, you know, talk about leaving spring training and that sort of thing. I, I mean, I, I was just amazed at that. So, you know, that's the type of guy he was. He just remembered stuff. One thing I found, I mean, just a trivial piece of history, but you were in the, this phase, or this era too, where contact lenses seem to be coming more into, into, you know, popularity. The yep. paper mentions, you know, you were one of three guys on the team to switch from glasses to contacts. And did that, was that yeah. a significant help in your pitching? Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I mean, you know, the glasses, the glasses helped you play, but it was always the big aviator glasses. You know, I had them, Ray Lamb had them, the guys on the Indians, but you know, you would, they would, they would bounce around, uh, they'd fall off your nose, you know, sweat would fall on the glasses and, you know, it would skew your vision and, you know, I have to take time to wipe them off. Um, I, I know in, in spring training that year, I went to uh, to the local Sears because Alan Ashby, who was my roommate, he had gone to soft contact lenses. I tried the hard ones and I just couldn't get used to them. So I went to the Sears store and they put in some soft lenses. I walked around the store and was just amazed that I could see without glasses. And forevermore, I still wear soft contact lenses. That was a big plus for me. You know, to be able to pitch in the big leagues or pitch at all with the contacts and not the glasses. So big savior for me. Another thing, and we we spoke about it via email, but uh, you know, I have to ask you about the the bubblegum competition. <laughs> How was it you? Were you just known as the guy that could do the big bubble? I mean, that it's it's well, pretty I, always, I always did it. 
you know, there was always, there was cops and there wasn't many, there wasn't other cards, really. It was just cops and their bubble gum. You know, you spend what, five or 10 cents, you'd get five cards and a piece of gum. Well, I used to do, I was never a chewer uh, for tobacco, that sort of thing. So I always, I always chewed gum. So you take, you know, three, four, five sticks of gum, put them in your mouth and just blow bubble. You know, I always did it. And then Tops came out with that, that contest that every player, every team was going to have a, a representative. And I was chosen to do that. And every time you went into a, a new city, the two guys for each team, the home and the away, would have a would have that like a blow off, if you will. And they had this special they had this special representative from Tops who had like two baseball bats made out of cardboard, and they were like scissors. You could open them up, you know, to and they would give you um, a diameter of the of the uh, bubble gum, you know, the balloon that you had. So uh, to the best of my recollection, um, I had held the record for 28 inches in diameter for, for the bubble. Um, I ended up eventually, eventually they had like a playoff, divisional playoff, World Series playoff. In the winter, it got a, like a, a four-day weekend in Hawaii or something like that. As it turned out, I ended up losing in the, uh, let's see, the divisional playoff, Kurt Bavakwa who was with the Indians when I first came, but he would, he was traded. Um, I don't know if it was the Yankees. I'm not sure where exactly he went, to be honest, but I ended up facing him. I ended up losing. And then he ended up losing in the world series, you know, in quotes, if you will, um, someone from another team won and ended up going to, to Hawaii, but you know, it was always fun. I was blue bubble. You know, people think that's funny. And, used to pop them so it was all over your face and that sort of crap. You ran into a problem where you were in the middle of this contest and you got sent down for a few days, so they didn't know you're, if you were going to be able to yep. keep participating, but luckily you were able to come back up like within five days, so you were still in the contest. Yeah, my my arm was bothering me. It was one of those times after the, you know, after I tore it, and I was having a, was having a hard time with that, so they sent me back to AAA for a week just to just to take it easy and get some exercise. And, and they pulled up, they needed a reliever. And I'm thinking, it seems like Bob Reynolds, um, they called him up, but they needed, they, needed a, they needed a new starter. They needed a reliever or something. So they let me go for five days to come back. And then I think it was shortly after that that they ended up losing to Babaka. But it was a, it was a very short stint. And, and again, I, you know, that's something that I just never recovered from. So I never had it operated on. still bothers me today, but at least I don't have to picture worrying about it. Do you, do you recall a, uh, a club basketball team you played on with uh, Eckersley and Brohammer? Yeah, you, what was oh that? Yeah. So we, we decided to have um, the guy. Oh, gosh, I can't. Let me think of who this was. There was a professor at the university. That no, I'm sorry. He threw batting practice. Um, seems like his name was Paul. Wore glasses. He he was from University Hospitals. Had you know he knew the players, a lot of the players. And of course, he threw batting practice every day. He had the great idea to get a team together to go play, like uh, athletes that came back, and they were going to have like a you know a day for the basketball team or play the you know the the coaches or play the the uh, faculty, something like that. And, and we would, it was, uh, let me see, 
was actually played LaRoche played I played uh, Manning Freddie Bean um, I, I think um Duffy and Liss Doug Deacon Doug Deacon even played once or twice Duffy I think I mean I, I don't recall if you know who it is but we would go play and we were offered 50 bucks a player you know to go play so it was pretty good basketball team. um uh Joe Liss was on the team I believe as well so we travel around, you know, we travel around Northern Ohio and go play for, you know, for charities or that sort of thing, or the, you know, student athletes night or the faculty, whatever. It was a fun time. You know, being a ball player, you know, there was never anything just for fun. If they were keeping score, we were going to win. <laughs> so, you know, ball players can be competitive. Athletes can be competitive. So no one liked to lose. I don't, I don't recall that we lost many games. To be honest, we had a pretty good, pretty good team. But anyway. But the Indians didn't like that, obviously. If, because, oh, Buddy Bell was on the team, too. Um, they were always afraid that somebody was going to get hurt, you know, turn an ankle, hurt your knee, that sort of thing. And if I'm, if memory serves, Buddy got hurt one night, twisted his ankle, you know, twisted his knee or something, and everybody held their breath about that. Uh, and and as, as it turns out, it was very minor. You know, nothing, nothing more than that day, so... Big picture. I mean, just any reflections or any, you know, years later now, I mean, we said before we started all this, you know, you, you reached out asking a while a year ago about, you know, stuff to show your, was it grandkids or just still a big deal. You got to play in the league. Yeah. What thoughts? Yeah, do you I, have? So I, you know, I, I, I have a few reservations. I, I don't try and look back and, you know, gee, I wish this and this and this, but I, I do have, you know, I wish my, my, my kids and now my grandkids, I, I wish they could have seen me play. They were just too young, you know, so I don't know. I given, I tried a couple of times to get a hold of the channels uh, to see if, if someone would talk, but I could never find the right person to see if they had archives of anything. And that's how I got to you, Jeremy. Thanks, Junior. Who sells tickets to the Indians? You put me in touch with you. But, I, you know, that's kind of how you and I got together. But you know the reflections of of that. Um, I, I I had been divorced from my first wife from from Eileen, and I'm now married. You know, six years to my wife Mary, and she had, she's a big proponent. Always tells people that I played, and you know she would, she'd have been a good manager. But I, I wish that I could show her, uh, you know, films. You know, I guess the other part of that, and I don't I don't know how this is going to come off or what it sounds like. And I don't mean it to sound, I don't mean it to sound like I'm not, not happy or I'm being, um, I don't know. I don't even know how to explain this to you in that there are days that I think about playing and they're fond memories. I mean, when I was a kid, I wanted to play baseball when I knew you had to do something for a living. It was always baseball, you know, basketball, football always you know, came into play, but it was always baseball. I wanted to play professional baseball. I mean, back for as long as I can remember. And, and being able to do that, and then you know being able to be that one percent that ever gets to the big leagues, and to get there, to know that you were good enough to play, you know to have some success, and then get hurt, you know having to leave what you wanted to do for a lifetime with an injury. There there are days that you know when I think too hard about it, it's, there are days I wish that I'd never even gotten to the big leagues to get a taste of it. I probably could have put up more with you not good enough to play. 
than to know that you're good enough to be there and then get hurt and have to leave. So, you know, those are the things that I think about um, the memories, some of the memories I have. But there are other, and the point that I was trying to make about, I don't mean it to mean it sound like poor me or that sort of thing. I mean, there are guys out there that say, you know, I would have given anything. I would have given my left arm to play even for one day. So the fact that you got there, you got to do, you know, a childhood dream, you're able to play even if it was for one day, you know, that kind of brings you back to reality. So certainly it was great to play. I would, I, I'm, I'm fortunate, you know, to be able to say that I played in the big league, you know, even if it was a short time. And that's where we're going to end things. We're about a well, little, like an hour into this. And, you know, I could have talked to Eric forever, but, um, you know, obviously got to end the conversation somewhere. And if you know me, I'm a bit of a rambler, so I'll just keep talking and talking and talking. But just fascinating stories from someone that played in an era of Cleveland baseball that, you know, it's not as revered as, say, those 90s teams. But, you know, Eric played on a team with Hall of Famers under a, a Hall of Fame manager. Um, and just got that that shot at the big leagues and you know with that comes the the stories i mean he has a baseball card how many people can say they have a baseball card even though it only lasted a little over a year but nevertheless just fascinating stuff from eric and i was so happy to be able to sit down and talk to him even if it was virtually and and get those stories so i hope everyone enjoyed this podcast i'm sorry for the long hiatus it was not intended sometimes uh you know life just gets in the way i suppose but just want to thank everyone again for listening to cleveland's team a baseball history podcast and hopefully i'll be back soon with the next episode You've been listening to Cleveland's Team, a baseball history podcast with Guardians team historian Jeremy Fedor.